The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. So we've been uh, looking at this topic of samadhi now for the last number of weeks and I do have a handout up here. Some of you, most of you maybe have gotten it already, but if not, just some notes uh, regarding the last few months of practice that we've done here on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and Sunday mornings. And in particular tonight, I want to talk a little bit more about rapture, about this state of mind when the energy of the mind comes together, when our attention isn't broken up or fragmented due to distraction, due to various kinds of mental agitation, like being worried, thinking about the past or future, wanting things to be other. Then when that's not happening, the mind naturally gathers in a sense, or it is naturally non-dispersed. And that experience of the mind not dispersed or unified we call samadhi. It's a particular kind of balance and it has a particular kind of flavor, a flavor of balance, a flavor of wholeness. And one of the characteristics of that balanced state of mind is what we call rapture or joyful interest. When one of the initial obvious qualities that we can begin to notice and in, be, in, in being able to recognize rapture or that joyful interest, even when it's in a more mundane uh, state, can help the balance of mind, the concentration to develop. And as I think I mentioned last week, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how to notice what hinders that balance of mind, what hinders, gets in the way of concentration. And we often talk about this in terms of seeing the hindrances or seeing the different disturbances in the mind and learning to relate to those disturbances with skill. You know, our habit is when we see something ugly or bad, you know, we freak out or we just don't want to deal with it. So we, we deny it or we practice distraction. Obviously, that's not the skillful way to relate to disturbances in the mind. If you're interested in this particular path that the Buddha laid out, <clears throat> the answer is always the same. You know, no matter what's going on, the answer or the question is, well, can we, can the mind, can the heart be mindful? In other words, is the heart or mind capable of opening in this balanced, clear, relaxed way to the way it is. And this is true whether we're opening to the, the next in-breath or the next sound, or we're opening to the craving mind or the worrying mind or the judging mind. And it's really nice that it's simple in that way. So like we have in the past couple of months talked about abandoning the hindrances when the hindrances are abandoned, when there aren't habits, agitating habits, disturbing, dissipating, fragmenting the mind, then we have samadhi. 
So one approach is to learn to see what needs to be abandoned, to bring skill to those various habits, meaning skill again means to see it as it is, to see the force of greed as it is, to see the force of aversion as it is. And it's not like a stare-down contest, you know, where you, oh, I see you, aversion, as if that's going to make it go away. The gaze or the, the heart that knows that habit in the mind, that greedy habit or the aversive habit, the impatience in the mind, it's a, it's a really uh, beautiful quality of mind. It's like wisdom, love, seeing aversion. And being intimate with the aversion, because whatever that agitating force is in the mind, it's going to express its nature, which is to arise and to cease. So we don't do a stare down with those negative or agitating forces of mind. We practice, in a sense, resting with them, resting with them with wisdom, meaning we're not reacting to it. Because we know that whatever it is that's agitating the mind, if it's left alone, it's going to go away on its own. It's only when we get identified with it and think it's something that needs to be gotten rid of, that's what actually strengthens it. This is obviously a hard lesson to learn. It's very hard. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> it's very hard to see these forces and to know these different habits, to know very directly in our own experience that they're causing a weight. They're, in a sense, harming the mind. They're destro de destroying the balance of mind, the balance, the equanimity in the heart, the ease of the heart. These agitating habits of mind actually are destroying the balance, the ease in the heart. But hating them judging ourselves for being this way, having this kind of mind, all of that, of course, is just more agitation layered on top of what's already there. So there's a lot of skill involved in seeing these different forces of greed, aversion, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. These are the five hindrances. They're listed in that, in the notes. It's a nice list to memorize because when your mind, heart, feels disturbed, then you can just ask yourself, you know, well, are one of the hindrances at play in the mind, moving in the mind? Oh, yeah, judging. But judging's a kind of aversion. And it's like this. Okay, I'm not going to get averse to the aversion, to the judging. I'm going to practice understanding it. It's like this. See how it is. See how it arises in the mind and see that the judgment, the habit of judging, very quickly ceases when the mind's not identified with it. When we're identified with the activity of judging, in a sense we're recreating it moment by moment, it seems like it has some integrity, some continuity. But these negative agitating forces in, in the mind, the only continuity they have exists because we're not seeing clearly enough. It's there, and then it ceases. And if we're attached, the attachment is the cause for it arising again. And then we get attached, and it arises again. But if we can see it clearly and see that it ceases, 
it changes our relationship to it. It's hard to take the judging, for example, the critical mind personally when it ceases. But when it's like there, and that's all we know, that it's there, then we take it personally and we feel, well, I really must be upset because these judging thoughts are there and there and there and there in my mind. Now, the other way, as I mentioned last week, to begin to cultivate samadhi, we don't want to be left uh, only with half of uh, sort of skill, the one half of skill, which is to see what's in the way of samadhi, to bring wisdom and patience, and to watch that stuff cease, and to get skillful at preventing the arising by maintaining that wise attention. There's another more positive way, not more positive in the sense that it's uh, more functional. Both are equally functional. But it balances our skill. So we want the skill of abandoning and preventing the hindrances from getting established in the mind. Greed, aversion, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. And we want to become skillful at recognizing, even if it's in a feeble state, recognize the beginnings of balance, the beginnings of concentration, the different elements or supporting elements that allow concentration and balance of mind to arise. By simply knowing the vo that vocabulary of the mind or that those sort of qualities of mind that support samadhi actually strengthens and, and sort of greases the uh, movement toward the development of samadhi, this beautiful balance, integrity of mind, the non-distraction of the mind, the non-fragmentation of attention. So it's a particular kind of attention that that is sort of three things. You know, This is just how I think about it. When the mind is, has that nice balance, there's a lot of brightness, alertness, clarity, and a lot of relaxation, no agenda. So that brightness has no agenda. It's like alertness for its own sake, clarity for its own sake. So when we have that balance, there's a natural sensitivity. The mind can't help but notice what's going on in the moment because it's sensitive. It's like really bright, really. It's like shining with knowing, with awareness. And it's really pleasant. The pleasantness of samadhi is due to the non-dispersal of the energy of the mind. Because the mind's not fragmented, not dispersed, the mind, heart, likes energy. It's, in a sense, primal pleasantness is having energy. Just like primal unpleasantness is not having any energy, right? We all know, like when you feel dull, when you feel exhausted, it's not pleasant. But when you feel like you have a lot of energy, even if it's zingy or even if it's uh, sort of um, you know, all over the place, we like energy. So we do all kinds of things to agitate the mind because even though agitation hurts, we like the energy of agitation. It's better than no energy. Right? If we had a choice to have no energy or to be agitated, a lot of us choose agitation. Because first and foremost, we're energy junkies. The mind, heart, depends and likes energy. So samadhi 
is sensitive. It's pleasant because of the energy, the brightness. And the third quality is it's capable of seeing things as they are because of the sensitivity, the brightness, uh, I mean, the, yeah, the sensitivity and brightness and the pleasantness. This pleasantness causes something to happen. When we're feeling this pleasantness and it's precisely pleasant because the mind isn't being distracted, isn't being drawn over here, drawn over there into the future, into the past, about this, comparing to that, fantasizing about something. Because the pleasantness is about what the mind is not doing instead of what it is doing, it has some stability. And the pleasantness leads to tranquility because when there's a lot of pleasantness and we don't have to do anything to maintain it, it's a pleasantness that's there because we're not doing anything. So resting actually strengthens the pleasantness. The not getting distracted strengthens it, right? The pleasantness leads to tranquility because when we're feeling that pleasantness, the heart goes, ah, I don't have to go do anything. So the doing part of our habit energy starts to shut down. So from doing to stillness. So that's a this middle characteristic of pleasantness leads to stillness. I'm going to talk about this tonight as I uh, dig into the experience of rapture a little bit more tonight. Now there's a lot of different ways that we use the word rapture, so maybe joyful interest is a better word. <laughs> so we have the clarity, the brightness, the sensitivity. We have the pleasantness leading into tranquility and we have the potential insight because of the balance because the mind has its uh, an integrity it's not running here and there that means that the way it understands the way it sees things isn't being distorted by its running here and there it's precisely the lack of distraction in the mind that allows it to see things as they are. In, in Buddhism, we call that seeing Dhamma, the way it is, seeing the nature of things. And the Buddha says the reason that as human beings we have a lot of stress and that we get caught up, identified with the five hindrances, is precisely because we don't see things as they are. We keep misperceiving things. In other words, we see, take things personally and then because we take things personally, we fall into habits of greed and aversion. We get exhausted by that. We get restless or agitated because of that. And we have doubt because of that. So all of the hindrances arise because we're misperceiving. We're not seeing things as they are. When we have samadhi, insight, the deepening of wisdom is unavoidable. There's no way a human being can develop samadhi regularly, maintain samadhi with some resonance, and not start being a wiser, more loving human being. So it's there's a proximate cause, a natural cause for wisdom and compassion. It's not that some people are lucky. When we're not wise and not compassionate, 
It means the mind is seeing things based on misperceptions, a, a confused point of view, distorted perspective. And the distortions lead directly to greed and aversion, which lead directly to exhaustion and agitation and doubt. And they all feed back to one another. And we call that being an ignorant human being. It feedback, it, it's a feedback mechanism where the distortions disturb the point of view, disturb one's perspective. And the disturbance in one's perspective, the misperception, causes more agitation, more disturbance. And it's an endless cycle, endless feedback loop. When we cultivate mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness leads to samadhi, this beautiful balance where the mind is alert, bright, sensitive, it's pleasant, leading into tranquility, it sees things as they are. This inevitably leads to wisdom, to insight, the purification of view. The whole path of practice that the Buddha laid out is a purification of view. It's how a human being transforms his or her understanding of this, this lived experience. That's the only thing that needs to change. We need to transform our understanding. So last week, or maybe even a couple weeks ago now, and this is also in the, in the notes, I introduced a positive way to begin to develop samadhi. These five jhanic factors. And again, it's a nice list to memorize. And a, it's common sense. These factors, these qualities, mental qualities, are not as obscure as you might think. So we have initial application of mind, sustained application of mind, rapture or joyful interest. Sukha is the word for ease or kind of relaxed happiness, contentment even. And then the last, ikagata, is the Pali word for stillness, equanimity, or usually it's translated as one-pointedness. So connecting, sustaining, joyful interest, or just joy, uh, ease or happiness, and one-pointedness or stillness of mind. So you can remember these five qualities. And as you're sitting, then you're, you're in a sense, you're just on the lookout. There you are, aware of the in-breath aware of the out-breath, or maybe you're working with the sensations of sitting, and you're just feeling the vibration of the body sitting, and the flow of sensation and aching here. And there. But the mind is in that relative, peaceful, balanced, non-agitated state. So there may be painful sensations, but the mind's not reacting to the pain in the knee or the back. It just knows. There are these intense sensations, and they're like this. There's this vibration or tingling over here, and it's like this. The feeling of being upright is like this. Or you may be working with sound as your main anchor. So there are different anchors, uh, primary objects for the meditation practice. It's good to have one that you work with over time so your mind can learn to love it, be a good friend for you, coming back to the breath, coming back to the predominant sensations of sitting, coming back to hearing. And there we are in the balance. And then in that balance, in that continuity of feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out, feeling the breath coming in, then 
you're just, in a sense, awakening to the presence of these five qualities. And initially, in the beginning states of concentration, as the mind becomes more concentrated, more in balance in this beautiful way, you're going to notice the initial and sustained application of mind, or in short, connecting and sustaining. This is an activity of mind that you can just notice. So you basically, you're just not noticing the sensations of the in-breath. You're actually noticing the mental quality of attention that takes, in a sense, takes attention and connects with, if you're feeling the breath here, connects with that touching, 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 touching as the air is going in, right? And then you're feeling the air touching, touching, touching as it goes out. That's the connecting and sustaining. It's an actual um, process or functioning. It's a, a quality of the mind that connects and sustains. And we can notice that. Now, rapture arises from that continuity, from the connecting and sustaining, that third jhanic factor. Jhana is a word for, usually translated as absorption. So it's that collection of mind we've been talking about. So the five jhanic factors are the five mental qualities that uh, together allow the mind to become absorbed in the present moment, to collect itself, in a sense, in the present moment. Now I want to spend a little time with rapture tonight because, again, once you can begin to recognize some of the different qualities of rapture, that itself can help that balance of mind deepen or strengthen. And uh, like you might imagine, there's sort of early forms of rapture and then more intense or more obvious kinds of joyful interest. And as I explained a couple of weeks ago when I first introduced the five jhanic factors, rapture or the word rapt is a good word for this because one of the feelings, one of the qualities, it's a mental quality, but it often has a visceral, physical uh, sort of reflection. It, you feel it in the body, in other words. And it has that sort of rapt feeling, like the body doesn't want to move. You know, often when we first begin to sit, not just as a beginner, but the first moments of a sit, too, for those of you who've been sitting for a while, the body doesn't necessarily want to be still. But when the the practice develops a little bit, maybe later on, or maybe you're having a particularly good sit, one of the things you'll notice is the body is wrapped. It doesn't want to move. Not necessarily in an obvious way. You have to look for it at first. It's like content to be still. And that feeling of being held in space, it's a, it's a kind of like you're in jello. It, you could move. You know, It's not like physically you're tied down in space. But the body feels like it's being held there. And also, it's exactly the same experience in the mind, but it's more subtle in the mind. But the mind doesn't want to move. So the word rapture itself is useful in that way. The rapt attention. Whatever the attention is on, it's not that the breath is sort of holding the, the mind that the mind is finding some pleasantness in being with the object, in the connecting and sustaining. It leads to an effect. Connecting, sustaining leads to an effect. And you want to 
become a connoisseur of that effect. It's like a, a friend of mine, some of you know Doug McGill, who uh, runs or leads the Rochester, Minnesota sitting group. Uh, he's got a big house near Mayo Clinic, and he has a Thursday night Vipassana sitting group, like here at Common Ground, a smaller organization, of course, but pretty active. And he gives talks here every once in a while. But he once said, you know, how uh, Eskimos are said to have 20 words for snow. Buddhists have many, many words for joy. Now, we don't always think of it that way. We Sometimes people even think that Buddhists are grim <laughs> and not a very pleasant group to hang around with. But actually, if you're into meditation, you need to have a refined and sophisticated understanding of joy. It's really important to begin to taste the different flavors of stillness, of relaxation, tranquility, energy, interest, joy, ease, contentment, all the different pleasant flavors that accompany the gathering of the energy of the mind. As the mind moves towards balance, moves towards integrity, moves towards this releasing of self-centered activity, the relative freedom, the temporary freedom from greed, anger, and delusion. And if you don't remember, you know, the whole goal of the practice, the Buddha talks about Nibbana, or in Sanskrit, Nirvana. But Nirvana, Nibbana, means the absence of greed, anger, and delusion. That's what the pinnacle, that's what the aspiration is. The heart, mind, free of agitation. So samadhi is a temporary experience of freedom. When the mind is really in that beautiful, alert, bright, clear, relaxed, balanced place, we get a taste of what it's like to be free from self-centeredness until we start taking it personally. You know, and then the self, in a sense, is reborn as the one who likes samadhi, the one who wants more samadhi, the one who wonders if my samadhi is better than somebody else's samadhi, <laughs> or where can I get more of this, <laughs> or why did it take so long? You know, all those thoughts are different than the samadhi. Then greed is back in the mind, or aversion is back in the mind, or doubt is back in the mind or restlessness or dullness is back in the mind. I mentioned last week, one of the effects of the development of samadhi is the mind can get confused and think, I'm feeling so tranquil. This would be a great time to go unconscious. And the mind stops being interested. And then we lose our samadhi. Or the other side effect of samadhi is, I'm feeling so energized. This would be a good time to plan my house renovation or good time to figure out what's wrong with my relationship with my partner. And so then the mind stops doing whatever it was doing to support that balance, and it gets agitated by its thinking, whatever it's thinking about. So it's not so easy to maintain this. But when we become a connoisseur, a real somebody interested in the different flavors of joy, not to get identified with them, but just to see them, and to begin to understand them as forces in the mind that have consequences. Because when we learn about joy and all the different flavors of joy, 
we begin to see it along a spectrum. More energetic joy at this end of the spectrum, and over here, more refined joy. And we begin to cultivate a taste, just like you would with wine or cheese or music or any kind of art. You know, at first, you know, you don't know the first thing about art, and you're just like, well, I like red, so I, I think I like this painting because it has a lot of the color I like in it, or, you know, something like that. But then, you know, we become sophisticated, and we, we can appreciate more refined elements. We, we have a sense of what the artist was trying to say. We have a sense of the artist's uh, craft, and, you know, and it's the artist's sort of connection with uh, lineage and all these sorts of things, which help us appreciate it. Well, it's the same thing. At first, what we really look for, because we're gross, we look for joy that's just like intense. We want ecstasy. We think that's, in a way, the pinnacle of happiness. But the more we start paying attention to joy and, and different qualities of happiness, we see that actually ecstasy, the rapture, is at the gross end of happiness. And that actually happiness becomes more refined, more subtle, and more beautiful as it moves along the spectrum toward more towards peace, more towards stillness. So even in terms of the five jhanic factors, although all five are useful and we need to be well-schooled in connecting and sustaining and the rapture and the sukha, the ease and the one-pointedness or stillness, it also helps us understand that spectrum because connecting and sustaining that like you know, it's like the mind, you know, when we're working out, chopping wood or cleaning, there's a certain joy in sort of doing something functional and applying our energy and our muscular activity to some task and seeing the accomplishment. Well, in a mental level, that's connecting and sustaining. But like, it feels good to take the attention and to know the breath and keep knowing the breath. It feels like functional. The mind feels like it's accomplishing something. I'm knowing the breath, and I'm really knowing it because I'm not, I'm not forgetting it. I'm not getting distracted. That's what connecting and sustaining is. It's sort of one of the feelings that arise. This is the sort of birth of rapture, actually, is uh, the mind, in a way, is, this isn't exactly the right word, but it's proud of itself. It's like, it feels like, oh, I'm doing what I was born to do. This part of the mind was born to understand, not born to be lost in thoughts about things, but born to connect and sustain and to know this is the in-breath, this is the in-breath, this is the in-breath, this is the out-breath, this is the out-breath, this is the out-breath. This part of the mind was born to be connected in this authentic, real way with experience, this unfolding experience. And so there's a kind of satisfaction that arises, a, a, a joy that arises. The mind feels good about itself. It feels like it's accomplished something. And this is a, a gross kind of joy, of rapture. Good. you know. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, with the connecting and the sustaining and the rapture, the mind abandons dullness, doubt, and aversion. It feels good about itself. It's not doubting what's going on. It knows what's going on. In-breath, in-breath, in-breath. 
out-breath, 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 hearing. Whatever it is, whatever the mind is connecting with, it knows it because it's not distracted. Connecting, sustaining, feeling that goodness of not being confused, not being in doubt, not being dull, and not being irritated by experience. Finding it satisfying to connect and sustain. Just like you'd find it satisfying to go chop a bunch of wood and get ready for the winter, or find it satisfying to scrub the kitchen floor and have a nice kitchen floor. In the same way with the mind, connecting and sustaining is inherently satisfying. It feels good. In the same way that worrying for an hour doesn't feel good, or revisiting past events many more times than is functional doesn't feel good, or speculating about the future on and on and on, it doesn't feel good. It dissipates the energy. We have more doubt the more we think about something, not less doubt. <coughs> so I'm just going to end by reading these five kinds of rapture. This is something that Saida Upandita, a person I studied with, and um, somebody who's taught a lot of the teachers I've studied with as well, wrote about in his book, In This Very Life. I think it's taken from the Vasudhi Maga, a collection of commentaries from uh, Buddha Gosa uh, from the third century CE. So there are five kinds, and you can see how it's uh, developing. First, let me just read something that Saida Upandita says in his book, In This Very Life. He's a Burmese uh, meditation master, Buddhist monk. When rapture occurs, coarse and uncomfortable sensations are replaced with something very soft and gentle, velvet and light. You may feel such a lightness of body that it seems as if you were floating in the air. At times, the lightness may be active rather than still. You may feel as if you're being pushed or pulled, swayed and rocked, or as if you are traveling on, a rough, on rough water. You may feel off balance. But it is nonetheless, nonetheless very pleasant. So the five kinds of rapture he mentions. The first is lesser rapture, which arises after the hindrances have been kept at bay for a sufficient time. And it includes like a, a thrill, like a wave of energy, a wave of joy, or a chill, or even like the, uh, the raising of hair from the back of the neck, or goosebumps, something like that. So that's the first, maybe one of the first kinds you'd experience. And then there's uh, something called a momentary rapture, or a more sudden experience. It can be quite pronounced. I remember once doing some walking meditation practice during a longer retreat back in the 90s, and, and it was like at the end of the walking path, and my mind was balanced. And it was in, in the middle of a longer retreat. So my, my body and mind was pretty settled. And it was like, a, like somebody had lit a firecracker, like a big boom. But, of course, there was nothing that had happened. But just a, a movement of energy in the mind. The mind, in a sense, came into balance because, you know, maybe it wasn't so smooth. It just sort of came in balance. And there was a big burst of energy in the mind, like an explosion in the mind. So this is a sudden kind of rapture that can come in. And then the next, the third, is called overwhelming rapture. And the uh, classical simile is of someone being engulfed by a huge wave, seeing it coming, 
and being sort of washed away. And I remember a time, this is even longer ago, and I actually was reading a book, a Dharma book, and uh, I felt like a strong inspiration from what I had just read. And I stopped, I just sort of put the book down, and I was reflecting. And remember, rapture arises from connecting and sustaining. Now, you can, you can connect and sustain with an idea in the same way that you can connect and sustain with the sensations of an in-breath. The object doesn't matter. What matters is the, uh, the uh, wholesomeness of the connecting and sustaining, meaning the mind, the attention that's connecting and sustaining isn't under the influence of greed and aversion or distraction. And so there I was connecting and sustaining with this idea. And this huge wave started to build. And it just moved up to my body. You know, it's like my sort of uh, moved right through my head and like it went into outer space. And, you know, it's like this overwhelming wave of energy. And again, this is not some uh, mystical experience. It's the natural movement of energy when the mind starts to collect the en its energy. There is nothing more powerful than a concentrated mind. The Buddha, some of you know this, it's, it's interesting. The Buddha said there are three imponderables that you shouldn't think about because you go crazy. One is like thinking about how did all of this neurotic activity get started? <laughs> Don't think about it. He says it's beginningless. And another, I forget what the third one is, but the second one is uh, trying to understand the power of a concentrated mind. Because when the mind comes together like this, it's a little bit like a laser or maybe even a black hole. I don't know if you know much about physics. I don't, but I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> but, you know, when everything comes together, sort of normal laws of physics fall apart and you get what's called a black hole. And it's a little bit like it with concentration, too. This is not, not the level I'm talking about. This is a more superficial level of concentration. It goes much beyond this. But we just want to stay open to how little we understand about the mind. Like we're using, you know, just one fraction of one percent of the power of the mind because of our powerful habits of distraction, of worry and wondering about the future and thinking about the past and all of the self-centered activity that disperses the mind. So then the fourth is called uplifting or exhilarating rupture. And you feel so light that you might think that you're floating. And I uh, used to feel this. It still happens from time to time, but used to be a regular occurrence. I used to live at a meditation yoga center in New York City back in the 80s. And we had a, a routine of sitting three times a day. But at the morning practice was quite involved. We had some chanting and then 30 minutes of breathing exercises and then, I forget, 45 minutes of meditation. Then we do a long, like an hour at least, of hatha yoga, the, the poses, and then a deep relaxation at the end. So the whole morning took, I don't know, three, almost three hours, I think, of practice straight, plus the other times during the day we practice at noon and in the evening before we went to bed. And... Uh, 
after that, those two and a half hours, you know, then I do the lying down meditation, savasana it's called, at the end of yoga. And I get, I was really tranquil, my mind was really quiet. And then that posture, lying down, can be a very useful meditation posture, especially for a short period of time before, if you do it too long, you tend to fall asleep. Where after a few minutes, I'd be in a very tranquil place, and I'd start to feel this this very light rapture. And it was like I was floating. And it really felt like I was floating, like I had to look <laughs> and make sure I, I wasn't floating. So this is this is a more pervasive kind of rapture. And then it leads to the fifth kind, which is called pervasive rapture. And this is a, a feeling as if every cell, every pore in the body is melting. It's like, ah. And the, the strong feeling is not wanting to move. It's not that you can't move, but it just feels so good to be still. And to feel every, wherever you look in the mind or body, it's a sense of, ah, of releasing, relaxing. And it's very, it's overwhelmingly pleasant. Now, <clears throat> rapture has a particular effect on the mind. It suppresses aversion. When you experience rapture, even the beginning stages of rapture, it starts to suppress the deep old habits of being irritated and averse and impatient. And the stronger states of rapture, suppress the deeper states, the deeper habits of aversion, and allow for uh, a deeper relaxation or happiness, tranquility in the mind to arise, and then into stillness. We've talked about that before. So when you work with samadhi practice, this beautiful balance of mind, initially we emphasize the connecting and sustaining and the joy, the rapture that arises from that. But when you start to feel contentment and ease and stillness and peace, then don't emphasize connecting and sustaining. Emphasize the more refined qualities of happiness. If you really think, oh, I've got to work hard to connect and sustain, you're going to prevent the more subtle qualities of happiness, of peace, from arising in the mind, in the concentration practice. So we, at that point, there's still, of course, an awareness of the breath coming in, the breath going out. But even more predominant now, with your meditation object, whatever it might be, are these qualities of mind. So in a sense, the meditation object isn't just the breath, it's the breath and now more and more primarily, it's the experience of concentration itself, the qualities of concentration itself that the mind is aware of. We're aware of joy. So in the deeper states of concentration, the actual meditation object is the beautiful mind itself. That's what the mind is meditating on. The breath was a vehicle for balance. And then we start to notice the joy and the energy of that balance. And the more we notice that, things settle down. And then we notice the settling contentment, the ease. That's our object. But the more we notice ease, the more we start to notice stillness and peace. And then we let that be the object of meditation.
Now, if we're not aware of this change from gross kinds of happiness to more refined kind of happiness, we won't be able to experience the deeper states of concentration. And the deeper states of concentration allow the mind to see things as they really are. That's insight. That transforms the way we are in the world, the way we see, relate to experience. That's what transforms our lives. That's what uproots greed and aversion from the mind. So it's important. It, uh, we have every reason, because it's pleasant, because it's healing, and because it leads to deep insight. We have every reason to want to be skillful at developing samadhi by recognizing what's in the way, you know, abandoning the hindrances, which we talk a lot about and have the last few months. And now more we'll talk the next two weeks. We'll finish talking, we'll continue talking about uh, being interested in the joy and the peace of the samadhi itself and how that really supports the deepening of concentration, this beautiful balance of mind and how that inevitably leads to wisdom, unavoidably leads to wisdom. So I'll leave it here. We have about seven minutes. Maybe some of you have some experiences you'd like to share with the group or questions about what I said tonight. Yeah, Julian. I study with several different teachers, and there's lots of ways to go at the jhanas. Um, You know, with the one-pointedness and the stillness, it's a mental factor that can be incredible, like you talk about visceral sensation, as well as movements often. But my question is this, is, is to kind of begin the practice, you need a, a my understanding, you totally askew, you need enough equanimity to, to begin to see it. And then going through the states of rapture, you need equanimity to go, to kind of reel it in and, and, and sit in that place of stillness. So there's you need equanimity is, is, is really the first initial point. And it's also the point that allows you to refine it in the end and sustain it. <coughs> is that just a word you're not? Well, no, you need wisdom all the way along. Because even to, in the midst of being there with your crazy mind that's struggling with experience, you need wisdom or equanimity. You need to be able to step back, which is a... a, a a factor or, or an expression of equanimity, you need to step back in order to see, oh, that's greed in the mind. That's aversion in the mind. So you need equanimity all along the way. And there's this very pronounced chicken and egg problem in our practice, which is you need wisdom in order to develop wisdom. You need insight in order to develop insight. But we only have as much wisdom as we have. So with as much wisdom as we have, we practice abandoning the hindrances. With as much wisdom as we have, we practice noticing and not getting attached to the rapture. With not, uh, as much wisdom as we have, we notice the peace and we practice being with the peace without attachment, you know, as, as best we can. And then when we're, we fail at any of those levels, then the failure itself then is the next thing to bring wisdom to. This whole path the Buddha laid out is a path of wisdom. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't involve love. It doesn't mean it doesn't involve service and taking care of one another. But predominantly, how the Buddha talked about the practice 
he really came at it from the point of wisdom. And, and the, the way wisdom looks in Buddhism is equanimity or dispassion. It's the easiest way for us ordinary human beings, not fully enlightened human beings, to understand what the Buddha meant by wisdom. Because we have a sense of what being impartial, being equanimous is like. And so we need it all the way along. When the mind states and the body states are difficult, we need equanimity. When the mind states and the body state is starting to feel good and there's pleasantness and calm and joy, we need equanimity. And when things are very refined and very beautiful, you know, we need that wisdom. And whenever we lose the wisdom, the practice tends to fall apart very quickly. And we can go from being in a very refined state, and when we lose wisdom and the mind gets attached, or gets distracted, it can fall apart very quickly. And we can be in a very disturbed state of mind. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Julian. Other thoughts people have? Yes, say your name, please. Um, I'm Joey. This might kind of go along with what you were just saying, but last, about a year ago, I had, I had that experience of the big kind of energy, that big overwhelming wave. Mm-hmm. described it very well, I think. I'm laughing because uh, just story, there's so many funny stories about people leaving long retreats, three-month retreats, with a lot of samadhi going back out in the world. And people like Joseph Goldstein and some of the other uh, more senior teachers who've been around for a while, who've led these three-month retreats, talked about in the early year, they didn't really know what they were doing. They organized the three-month retreats. They'd be over. They'd just send everybody home. And then he'd jokingly say things like, you know, and then all along the eastern seaboard, as people were going home, there'd be all these crises as people bring their samadhi into the world. Because, as I, because as 